Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this series, God and Art, we are going to be exploring God from the perspective of all different kinds of artistic medium. We will be talking about God from the perspective of painting, sculpture, architecture, literature, poetry, film, and photography. My hope is that through these mediums, we will come to a deeper understanding of how God is present in our everyday lives. Enjoy. Our second scripture reading today takes place in another garden in the Bible, the Garden of Gethsemane. It starts, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and agitated. Then he said to them, I'm deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and stay awake with me. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So could you not stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away for the second time and prayed, My father... If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The word of the Lord. Back in 2001, when I was studying abroad in England, some friends came to me and asked, would you like to come with us to go over to France? I'd never been to France before, so I said, sure, I would love to accompany you. So, of course, we get on the channel that goes under the English Sound. We arrive in Paris, and we spend a few days seeing the sights, but where they had planned to go for the majority of this time was actually to a place in the south of France. It was a place known as Grenoble. Not Chernobyl, just so we're clear on that one, the Ukrainian site where they had the nuclear meltdown. A much nicer place, Grenoble. And as you can see from this map, it's right next to the French Alps. And so we get down there, and a few people who were with us, they just said, well, who here would like to go hiking up into those mountains? And I said, sure, I'd love to join you. So through some broken French, we were able to find a path that we could traverse up through the mountains without the use of climbing ropes, which is the way that you have to get up into a lot of those alpine mountains. So for about four hours, we're working our way up, and we get to the top. And if you remember, or if you've ever been up on uh, top of a mountain and you're going up the side, you can't see anything until you get to the peak and you come over the edge. And of course, when you get to the top, what can you see? Just everything, right? It's all out there. And it was the most beautiful sight I had ever seen because it was just mountains spanning for miles. And I remember that was the first time in my life that I was ever really, truly awestruck by the beauty of nature. There was something about that landscape that just resonated inside of me. Even though I felt so small and insignificant compared to this massive mountain range, I felt as though there was some kind of force at work in the world. Indeed, I felt for really the first time in my life that I was part of something much bigger than my own inconsequential life. 
That feeling of oneness, I have to tell you, it's probably the greatest assurance that I've ever had that God is real. Now, I don't know if you all have ever had an experience like that before, but I can tell you that when you have it, one of the characteristics of coming out of that experience is that you begin to look at nature slightly differently. Whereas you would normally walk by trees and plants and all this stuff and not even pay attention, you start looking at all that as being kind of like a fingerprint of God's presence in the world. Perhaps this is why some people love to create these beautiful gardens in their homes. I always love walking into somebody's house and seeing one of those beautifully manicured gardens. I certainly can't do that. Who's got a green thumb in here? Who likes to do things like that? Got a few, maybe? Okay. So, I've always wanted to do this. If you ever invite me over to your house, maybe you'll let me. I've never done this before, but I've always wanted to go in and I just want to lay down in the garden and look up at the sky. Because it gives you back, I know that that would give me back a little bit of that feeling of what it was like to be on top of those French Alps. And this connection between God and nature, you know, this is a connection as to why God, or why the people who wrote the Bible, why they start the human journey with God in a garden. Right? When humans, when they begin, where are they put? They are placed into the Garden of Eden. And it is within this garden that they feel God's presence. And I know it might be kind of hard to believe, but for the better part of the human species' existence, Homo sapiens, for like 200,000 years, we have not lived in temperature-controlled environments. I know that that's hard to believe these days, given all the temperature-controlled environments we live in, but for the vast majority of our history, we just lived in the midst of nature. And at that time, we didn't dominate the earth like we do today, taking up all the resources to use it for what we use it for today. In fact, we found this kind of natural equilibrium with our environment. And this equilibrium is a big reason why this story of the Garden of Eden is in the Bible, because what it's trying to tell you is that the more connected you are with nature, the more connected you're going to be with God. Good. You're better than the last service. They were kind of tentative on that one. Remember, it's God, Jesus, love. God, you would have been right on that one. Now, this is nothing new, right? Nothing new. It's not like people haven't known about this connection. In fact, people knew about this connection long before the Bible was ever even written. People for millennia, when they have wanted to have a religious experience, they immerse themselves in nature because when they're a part of God's creation, they feel like they're more a part of God. But this one-to-one connection between nature and God, it causes something to happen in our brains. And let me give an example of this. When you all think of the Garden of Eden, when you imagine it in your brain, now there's some details in the story, but how do you think of it? You probably think of it, if you're really going to imagine it, as this strikingly beautiful place, don't you? Isn't that what you think of? It kind of looks like that, right? Looks a little bit like what he drew right there, what he painted. Now, I think that that's a very common thing for us to think of striking striking beauty being connected with God. We want something that's going to awe-inspire us in the same way that the mountains awe-inspired me. It's something that stirs your soul, right? Now, why do we feel this way? Well, it's because ultimately, many of us live in landscapes that are very dull and boring. Let's take Arlington Heights as an example. (laughs) Now, nothing against Arlington Heights generally, but it's like most other suburbs, right? You walk outside and what do you see? Buildings and concrete. Now, we try to spruce it up a little bit with some parks and some trees and some flowers, 
But the reality is, you aren't going to walk outside into Arlington Heights and say, whew, I feel a connection with God out here, right? Because it's all man-made. Now, the, th the thing is, because of this, I think what happens to us is that we feel we need to have nature slapping us in the face if we're going to feel really connected with God. When you look at an environment that has been sculpted by human hands, it often doesn't feel the same way that we imagine it needing to feel in order to establish that connection. But that's not always the case. There are some instances where humans have sculpted the landscape in such a way that you sit there and you say, my goodness, that is beautiful and awe-inspiring. One of the places around here which I love and I've spoken about before is the Botanic Garden here in Chicago. If you've ever been there, that is a strikingly beautiful place. And the same with the Arboretum. That's, that's a very nice place to go to as well. One place, however, that I've always found to be rather interesting that people keep going back to again and again, which doesn't fit our design of what we think of as striking natural beauty, is actually over in Kyoto, Japan. There is a garden that is found in a Buddhist monastery, and it's known as the Ryonji Garden. Now, this garden was created in the late 1600s by Hosokawa Kasumoto, and the garden is very, very simplistic. It is 82 feet long by 32 feet wide, and it contains rocks and gravel. The only vegetation that's allowed to grow in this particular garden is some of the moss that grows up around the larger stones. And these larger stones, they are actually grouped into five different groupings. So the first grouping is one group of five, that's five stones. The, there's, then there's two groups of three, and then there's two groups of two. Of course, it's all surrounded by gravel, and as you can see from this particular photograph, it is raked. Every day, the monks go out and they rake this gravel, and they try to make it meticulous so that it looks exactly like what it did 400 years ago when it was created. And one of the things that you have to understand about this is that this garden is meant to be observed from a particular perspective. You're supposed to observe it from a seated position, in front of the veranda of the Hojo. Now, the Hojo is where the head of the monastery lives. This particular garden, I don't think it necessarily is something that when you look at it, particularly from an American perspective, you look at it and you think to yourself, yeah, that fits my definition of striking beauty, right? Because, let's be honest, I think most of us look at it and we see it as a bunch of rocks, right? But... What's amazing is almost every single person who goes and visits this garden, they come away with a sense of awe in their soul. And in fact, so many people have felt this way about it that scientists, they have tried to come up with a reason why this occurs. And so there was a journal in the journal Nature. They actually, some scientists went and they studied this, and this was their explanation for what this is all about. They say the garden is designed to appeal to the viewer's unconscious visual sensitivity to actual symmetry skeletons of stimulus shapes. I have no idea what that means. It feels to me like they just took a bunch of words and slapped them together, and then they said, here's a paper, we're going to publish it, and they said, that looks smart, so we'll just go on from there. Okay, that just is like a bunch of gobbledygook. It doesn't make any sense. I can tell you why I think people love this garden so much, and I think it's because of its simplicity. In the same way 
that humans are all inspired by the complexity of striking natural beauty. That same resonance can be felt when we observe the simple forms of barrenness. I know it might seem kind of strange, but if you're willing to take some time to look at something like a rock, a stone, and really observe it, I mean not just like glancing at it and moving on, but sit there and you observe a stone for 15, 20 minutes, something amazing happens. As you observe all these little details on the stone, things that you would never notice, you find yourself going into this amazing place of calm and serenity. And indeed, I have found that in those moments, when you do that, when you observe something as simple as a stone, you begin to hear God's voice a little more clearly in your life. And wouldn't you agree that it's very difficult to hear God's voice in our lives? Would you agree with that? I mean, I look at it as our lives are kind of like those old televisions. Now, I know this is going to be hard for you to believe, but I did grow up at a time where we actually used antennas on televisions. And what happened when the antenna would go out? What happens? There's fuzz on the screen, and then after the fuzz on the screen comes, you hear this loud sound. This is what it looks like. And it's really annoying, right? And do you remember, for those of you who might remember, so I remember doing this as a kid. So, like, the signal would go out, and you get behind it, and you're adjusting, like, the bunny ears, right? And they're, like, waiting, and then they're, like, perfect. And, of course, now you're part of the antenna, so you can't move. But they're, like, just stay there. It's perfect. We can see it clearly now. I know it might sound strange, but I really feel like our lives are no different from that static white noise. We are constantly being bombarded by stimulus in our lives. So we have three different kinds of stimulus that we deal with. Auditory stimulus, what you hear. Visual stimulus, what you see. And then the stimulus that's going on inside of your head, what you're thinking about. And I think that for many of us, we have this stimulus around us so much that we become uncomfortable if it is not present in our lives. Let me give an example of what I'm talking about. So when you all move into a new house, a new apartment, some new place to live, you walk in to that house or that apartment, and what is it? It's completely empty. So what is your first inclination when you walk into a place like that? What are you going to do? You're going to fill it with stuff, right? Now, why is that our first inclination? To fill an empty space with stuff. Because... I understand, you know, you have some things like you need, like a dresser and a bed. Those have utility. But you go through all this trouble to hang stuff on your walls, right? I mean, everybody does that. And yet, when you go through all this trouble, how often do you actually look at the stuff that is on your walls? I mean, once it's up there, you hardly even glance at it. It's just visual background noise. So, I pose the question to you. Why is it that we have to fill in those empty spaces in our lives. Why are we compelled to do that? And I think the reason why we feel we have to fill in those empty spaces is because when we see them, it reminds us of the emptiness inside of ourselves. When you look at a blank wall or something that is empty, it reminds you of some emptiness inside of your soul. And so when you look at a blank canvas, our first inclination is to turn away because We want to fill that in so it doesn't remind us of how we feel. But the more you do that, the more you put up stuff in your life, 
the more you block out God's voice. I really believe that if you are willing to sit there and just embrace the barrenness in your life, that that empty feeling inside of you, it will pass. And you're going to find something that you never actually knew was there. A real, solid connection with God. But this is easier said than done, isn't it? Because how many of you, given the choice, will sit in an empty space for long periods of time? Most of us will not. And I think the reason why is because there's a part of us that feels like God does not exist in those empty spaces. God is not present in the empty spaces of our lives. Take the Garden of Gethsemane story. Now, we talked about the Garden of Eden. Now, the Garden of Gethsemane, what's happening? Jesus is there. He's praying. He's about to undergo some of the worst suffering of his life. How do you imagine the Garden of Gethsemane? Is that a place that's bright and full of color and happy? No, what is that? It's a place that's very what? It's very dark. In fact, for many Christians, that is considered to be one of the darkest places on the planet. And so Jesus, he's in this garden, and he's searching for God. Can't seem to find God anywhere. Whereas in the Garden of Eden, what's happening? God's walking around, right? Speaking, actually present there. And so that's a contrast, isn't it? Jesus is in this situation. He's in a garden, and yet God is not there. He cannot seem to find God in this difficult moment. And the same is true in these other barren landscapes of our lives. Who has been to the south side of Chicago? Okay, if you've been to south side, you know how concentrated that poverty is. And you probably look at it and you say, how, God, do you allow all these people to live in such crime and violence and difficulty? Some of you may have been to third world countries. Maybe you've been to a place like Haiti. You've gone into that place and you see how people live in just these abysmal conditions. An entire country of people like this. And you say, God, have you abandoned these people? Do you know that Haiti is referred to as the land that God forgot? Or how about places where there's war? Elie Wiesel, he wrote the book Night. Maybe you've read it. He talks about his time in the Auschwitz concentration camp when he was a teenager. He talks about how he's next to a man who's starving to death. He's about to die. And he says to Ellie, he goes, I have more faith in Hitler than anyone else. Because he, Hitler, he alone has kept his promises, all his promises to the Jewish people. The implication being that God has not kept his promises to the Jewish people. Even today, what happened this past week, the shooting at the school in Oregon, How many of us look at that and we say, where was God in that moment? I think it is natural for us to look at situations where there is darkness and where there is depravity, where there is violence, and we step back and we say, where is God in that place? What I would like to suggest to you this morning, however, is that God is most present in those places of darkness. The difference is, it's harder for us to see them. So it's very easy for us to see God on a mountaintop in France, right? It just hits you in the face. In the same way, it's very easy to see God in the story of Garden of Eden, right? Likewise, it is much harder to see God in the Ryanji Garden 
in Japan because it's just rocks. We sit there and we say, where is God in that barren landscape? In the same way that we look at the Garden of Gethsemane and we say, where is God in that garden? The fact is, God is in all of those places. God never left. The only difference is our ability to see God in those moments. And I want to end this morning by telling you a story of a man who was totally transformed by being placed in a barren landscape of darkness. So this story revolves around a political dissident in 1964 who had just been sentenced to life in prison. The prison where he was sent to was right off the coast of South Africa. And at the time, he was considered to be one of the most dangerous revolutionaries in South Africa because he had conspired with other people to overthrow the apartheid government with violence. Of course, you all know who I'm talking about, right? Nelson Mandela. All right. Nelson Mandela, when he gave, was given that life sentence, he spent the first 18 years of that life sentence on Robben Island. It's what Robben Island looks like. You can see that it's right off the coast of South Africa. The prison on Robben Island was a very, very difficult existence. So Mandela, he was placed in a seven-by-eight-foot cell. As you can see, his bed was on the floor of that cell. And you can see that little red bucket next to him. That is his toilet. There was no running water in that place. Mandela, he was considered to be the lowest grade of prisoner. He was Class D, which meant that he was allowed one visit and one letter every six months while he was there. And any mail that he received was usually greatly censored by the guards who read it ahead of time. Every day, for eight hours, he was expected to go out to the lime quarry that was on the island, and he would literally, for eight hours a day, break the limestone apart with a hammer. The glare of the sun off of that limestone actually permanently damaged Mandela's eyesight. When Mandela first arrived at the Robben Island prison, he was known for being quite a hothead. He was known as being a man who was prone to outbursts and some violence. And, of course, he arrived at a prison where the prison guards, their entire purpose and desire was to break you down, to break your spirit. So you can imagine how Mandela must have reacted initially when he came into that environment. When they tried to break him, he lashed out. He tried to come back. He tried to make it so that they didn't get the better of him. But what's interesting is, day after day, month after month, year after year, of breaking this limestone apart, something began to happen inside of Mandela's heart. Over time, he developed this intense sense of calmness. In fact, his personality was so steady that it was almost as if nobody could do anything to cause him to become upset. Even though the prisoner, prison guards tried, he couldn't. They couldn't do it. And in fact, over time, he was so impenetrable to this outside influence that he was able to melt the hearts of the guards in the prison to the point where even the most hardened guards came to love him. And so, in this horrible, lonely, dark place Mandela found God's presence. 
he realized that the barren landscape of that limestone quarry was really no different than the barren landscape of his soul. And this rock that he was breaking every single day was really no different than he was. It was one in the same. So rather than see that limestone as his punishment, he saw the limestone as an extension of himself. And that limestone is the reason why he became the leader who we all admire, know, and love to this day. It is because of that limestone that he was able to transform South Africa from a place of horrific racism into a place of reconciliation. I know that there are many of you in here right now who are going through difficult times in your lives. Some of you have come to talk to me about those difficult times. Others of you are holding on to it by yourselves. And I know that many of you are like Mandela in the sense that you're upset, you're angry that your lives are in these circumstances and you wish that you were out of it. You may not be in prison, but you're looking at the barren landscape of your life and you're sitting there saying, where is God's presence in all of this? Because I'm not seeing God anywhere. I know it might sound trite, but I want to assure you that God is there. And you want to know why I know that? Because if God is present in that limestone quarry, in one of the most hellish prisons on earth, then God is right there next to you, suffering right alongside you. So my prayer for you this morning is that you might look at the barren landscapes in your life and that you might see yourself reflected in them in the same way that Mandela saw himself reflected in the barren landscapes of that limestone quarry. I hope that you might take the opportunity to observe a simple stone and allow that stone to transform you so that you can become that person who God intended you to be so that you can transform the world. It is possible. All it takes is a stone. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.